Yes, thank you, Walt. Yes, we went from, as they say, uh, man-on-man defense to zone this uh, last couple of weeks. Uh, uh, I'd love to tell more stories. I just We just got home, uh, my family on Friday, from uh, 17 days in China, bringing home our third uh, little two-year-old boy we named Elijah. Um, and he's, he's a, a, a treat, uh, and he is also a two-year-old. And, uh, and so uh, we are tired but blessed. Uh, I know many of you were praying for us along uh, during our trip, and I know God answered many of those prayers uh, in, in so many ways it couldn't have gone uh, much more smoothly. And, and so we're, we're, we're delighted. I think Betsy's going to be around third service here. I told her, so I'm one of the, if you don't know me, I'm Kenny. I'm one of the elders at Grace Fullerton and realized that the first Sunday back from China we were going to be here and not at Grace Fullerton. I said, Betsy, you can't go over there and, and, and everyone meet Elijah without me so she agrees so she's coming here third service so if you stick around after service you just might get to meet our, our newest little one Elijah <clears throat> and if I uh, start babbling incoherently at some point it's because my body doesn't quite know what time zone it's on and, and uh, neither does Elijah's and so we were up at 2 a.m. last night still but the Lord's given me strength so here we go we're in Mark chapter 14 if you would turn there <clears throat> Uh, and as we begin, uh, th- this is maybe the kind of the hook I want to hang all of this on, or what I've been praying that the Lord would do through this passage and these points this morning. Uh, there's a p- prayer of petition, speaking of prayers of petition, that Paul uh, prayed in uh, Ephesians 3. He said he prayed this, I think, frequently for Christians. Let me just read that to you briefly and, and connect the dots on, on how I think the Lord will use this passage today. <clears throat> Paul says, I pray that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Two little things in there. One is the thing Paul's asking God to do is to enlarge knowledge of the love of Christ. On one hand, he says the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. We can't see to the edges of Christ's love. It's so unfathomably big and large um, that it surpasses our knowledge. But we, it can be known and we can enlarge that knowledge. In fact, every week as we gather as the church, that's one of our primary aims is that our knowledge of the love of Christ toward us would enlarge. And here's the fruit of it that I love. That last line, I think of this line often. Um, Paul wants Christians who are filled with the fullness, with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. As I thought about that phrase uh, this week, I thought that is often not how I feel in my day-to-day life, filled with all the fullness of God. In fact, a Bilbo Baggins line came to my mind. He once said, uh, I feel thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. That's a great image. Can, can you relate to that feeling of feeling just thin, like you, you, a little bit of faith scraped over too much bread, a little bit of thin hope, thin peace, thin joy, uh, thin comfort. And, uh, and, and Paul holds out for us here, the full, all filled with all the fullness of God. Do you want that? Well, how that happens is enlarging your knowledge of the love of Christ toward you, which our passage uh, can absolutely do, I think, this morning. Because in this text, um, we get a glimpse into uh, 
the weary load that was borne by Christ. I love that line we sang. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him. This, this scene of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he's about to be betrayed, gives us this intimate glimpse of how weary the load was that Jesus bore. My weary load of sin and guilt and shame and unworthiness was borne by Jesus. Your weary load of sin and guilt and shame and unworthiness was borne by Jesus. And the weary load of millions upon millions of people was all borne by one man, Jesus, at the cross. Talk about just one aspect of Christ's love that we just can't wrap our minds fully around. It surpasses knowledge that one man bore all of that weary load. And this passage gives us a glimpse of how excruciating and agonizing this was for Jesus. This was not just a cakewalk because, you know, he was God and all. No. I want us to see three things in this scene. We're going to see Jesus' terror in Gethsemane. That's the side of Jesus that we haven't seen in the Gospel of Mark or any of the four Gospels. Jesus terrified. Second, we're going to see Jesus' temptation here in Gethsemane. And last, ending with Jesus' triumph here in Gethsemane. Let me pray. Father, would you strengthen us here this morning uh, with power through your spirit, like Paul prayed? Would you root us and ground us more deeply in your love? Would you give us strength to comprehend along with all the saints through the centuries this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Would you make us deeply thankful that our weary load can be borne by Jesus? And I pray that you would send us out this morning filled with all the fullness of God. That's what we want. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark 14. <clears throat> Forgive me if I, I cough and snuff, sniffle a little bit. I have a cold. I've got some Kleenex here on hand. I'll try to keep it to a minimum. But uh, we're going to read. But here's the context. So just before this, Jesus has shared one last Passover meal with his disciples. And during the meal, he's spoken to them again about his impending death. And he's even connected the dots a little for him, for them, in saying that he's about to give his body and blood like a Passover lamb to make a new covenant between God and man. And he's given them this meal to continue to do until he returns, he says, um, of taking bread and, and wine and remembering his body given and his blood shed for them. And they sang a hymn together and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so I think seemingly along the way, walking at night out to the Mount of Olives, he had done one last thing. He gave them a sober warning. He said, um, here's what's going to happen tonight. The shepherd's going to be struck. That's me. And the sheep are going to scatter. That's you. It's, it is written that this is going to happen. And there's some pretty bold talk went down, if you remember. Uh, Peter was the first to say, all the other sheep might scatter, but not me. 
That might happen to everybody else. You wonder how, how they all felt about Peter when he would say something like that, right? In some ways, I wonder if they're like, oh, here he goes again, right? But they all might fall away, but not me. And, and Jesus says, no, actually, before sunrise, you're going to deny me three times. And he, deny, he says, I would die before I deny you. And it says, all the rest said the same. They all said, no way. We're not scattering. Just like Peter, we would die with you. And this is where we pick up the scene. They get to their destination. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And yet not what I will but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and, and they didn't know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Three things for us to see first, probably spend the most time on this, is Jesus' terror here in Gethsemane. Jesus is here on the brink of the cross. He's at the very brink of the thing that he has been predicting calmly, collectedly to his disciples many times. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And yet here suddenly on the brink of it, Jesus comes undone. He's overcome with grief and he's filled with dread. So they get to Gethsemane, this place that John's gospel says uh, they frequently uh, went. He frequently took the disciples and he has most of them sit here and he says, I'm gonna go over here and pray. And he takes Peter and James and John again uniquely with him. He's done this a few times, hasn't he? Not exactly sure why these three, um, but he took them on a mountain one time when he was transfigured before them, right? They got this special glimpse of Jesus' divine glory, this, this view of, oh my goodness, he is much more than just a man. So Jesus takes them a little further away and they're about to see a very different side of Jesus. His weakness and his humanity. <clears throat> As they walk away from the rest, something unusual happens. Jesus begins to be greatly distressed. 
Astonished, it means. Alarmed, shock is coming over Jesus. You think up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus always seems to be calm and collected. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's been sent for. Teaching, preaching, healing. And suddenly here on the brink of the cross, um, he's gripped with shock and fear. He's overcome. And it says he's troubled. This is a word that means um, physically affected by horror, agitated or disturbed. Can you think of a time that you saw something or learned about something that was so horrific that it made you physically sick to your stomach? Can you think of a time? You, you just couldn't believe that something like that could, could happen uh, or take place and, and, and it made you sick. Jesus is troubled like this and he says to Peter and James and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. I don't think he means I'm so, I, I want to die. He's about to pray actually that God might deliver him from death. But I think what he means is I am so sorrowful it's killing me. This grief is going to crush me. Notice this is the one time I can think of in Mark's gospel that Jesus asks his disciples to minister to him. He says, my soul is so sorrowful unto death. Remain here and watch. Would you, would you stay right here, guys? I, I'm just going to go over there. Would you stay with me? I want someone near me in this. He asks them to minister to him. Can you imagine what they might have been thinking at this point? This is their rabbi, their teacher, the one who m crowds marvel at and casts out demons and, and teaches with authority and the one that Peter and they have confessed now is the Christ and he's falling apart, needy. Many have pointed out Tim Keller, pastor at Redeemer Church in Manhattan, one of them, uh, that many Christians throughout the centuries have died horrific martyrs' deaths much more bravely than Jesus here. Maybe you know some stories. An old book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, recounts all kinds of men and women who have faced unspeakable, violent deaths for the cause of Christ with bravery and courage, unlike what we see Jesus here. Let me give a couple examples. One of the earliest ones, Polycarp. He was a disciple of the Apostle John, uh, a bishop in Smyrna, which is now in Turkey. And he was threatened with being burned at the stake if he didn't recant his Christianity, his Christian faith. Listen to, to what he said when, when he was given the option. He said, for 80 and six years have I been this, his servant, and he has done me no wrong. So how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Another couple of men, Hugh Latimer, 
Nicholas Ridley were reformers in England in the 1500s and they were burned at the stake in 1555 in Oxford. Uh, Betsy and I uh, years ago got to, to visit Oxford uh, with uh, Eric and Donna uh, taught us and we went to this spot in the street where there's this, this little cobbled brick section with a little cross in the middle of a street that mark, marks where this happened. They were tied uh, together at the stake and burned alive and Hugh Latimer turned to Nicholas Ridley and said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Wow. I was thinking even of just this year, maybe for many of you, this image has been burned into your mind of those 21 Coptic Christians on their knees in the sand on the beach with sharp swords to their throat, whispering Jesus' name as they're about to have their heads cut off courageously facing death. So what is going on with Jesus? Why is he coming undone here? What causes terror in Jesus? It's the cup. We see it in what he prays. He prays about two things, the hour that's approaching and the cup, that this hour would pass from him and the cup could be removed from him, the cup. The cup throughout the Old Testament is a metaphor. Drinking the cup means bearing the wrath of God as a sinner in judgment upon your sin. We get this language in places like Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, lots of places where uh, Israel had broken covenant with God. They had sinned as a nation against God and God then made them drink the cup of his wrath. Not his full wrath, but they drank the cup. And throughout the Old Testament, when, when, when we see God acting in this way, acting in wrath, in judgment, it usually takes on one or both of the following. Either driven out of his presence, think Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Kicked out of the garden, out of this place of blessing and, 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 and unique special presence with God. Or... Um, delivered over to enemies, right? Like throughout the book of Judges uh, or later when, when uh, Israel is finally given over in captivity to Babylon. They're drinking the cup of God's wrath in judgment upon their sin. We get to the New Testament and Paul says in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is actually revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There is a cup of God's wrath that will one day be poured out on all unrighteousness. Jesus spoke often of that day and that ultimate cup being hell and used all kinds of vivid, terrifying metaphors like fire and smoke and darkness and decay and, and gnashing of teeth. But for all those metaphors, I think the most stunning and shocking uh, description of the final cup of God's wrath is 2 Thessalonians 1.9. This one verse <clears throat> is describing the reality that all those metaphors are trying to paint a picture of. At the end of the day, the wrath of God toward uh, sinners in their unrighteousness boils down to this. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
I think C.S. Lewis once put it like this. He said that, that ultimately it's God saying to, to sinners, thy will be done. You don't want me? I will completely remove my presence from you. The most fiercely avowed atheist right now on earth is experiencing every day in thousands of ways the grace of God's presence in oxygen, in blood, in a heart beating, in food, in beauty, in family, in community, all sorts of things that we enjoy because God has given them to us and God is present here in his creation even though it's fallen. But Paul is describing one day God in his wrath for all who are in their unrighteousness, he will remove them from his presence and the glory of his might that is abandonment. That is loneliness. That is terrifying. And God the Father is about to treat God the Son like this. This is what we ha- I want us to try to wrap our minds around. This is Jesus who had only ever for eternity past enjoyed the perfect love, the perfect presence of God the Father and God the Spirit. He had been adored and cherished by God the Father as he deserves in his glory and his splendor and his perfection and his righteousness. And he has only ever known what Psalm 16 describes. At your right hand, God, is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. All Jesus had ever known was this bliss. And here on the brink of the cross, Jesus is is looking into the chasm of experiencing for the first time ever the contempt of God the Father. Jesus is about to bear the sins of the world. The Holy One of God, that's what demons refer to Jesus as. We know you, the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God was about to become the defiled One of God. Clothed with the sins of millions upon millions. He was gonna become abhorrent to God the Father. And then God the Father is gonna treat Jesus as the defiled one would deserve to be treated. He was going to deliver him over to his enemies and allow him to die a shameful criminal death. And God, meanwhile, was going to do nothing and allow it to happen. You see, I don't think the worst thing to Jesus was what man was about to do to him. The worst thing to Jesus, as he realized, was what God wasn't going to do for him. Step in. Vindicate. We sing in, in how deep the Father's love for us, how great, how great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. The Father's about to turn his face away for the first time ever from his beloved Son. And as this sinks in for Jesus in the garden, he's terrified. He recoils against this thing that's about to happen. I don't read a lot of poetry, but on occasion, uh, I love George Herbert. He was a Christian poet, 
wrote some beautiful things. Not easy reading, mind you, but worth the effort. One that is not so difficult is called The Sacrifice. You might write that down. Go look it up. You can find it online for free. It's beautiful. Too long to read right now. It's got 62 stanzas, each one with four lines. And what he does is he imagines Jesus recounting every, in every detail, every little grief that he endured on the way up to uh, and culminating in the cross. And every stanza ends with the same question about this particular little grief. Was ever grief like mine? So a couple of examples. It starts, Oh, all ye who pass by, whose eyes and mind to worldly things are sharp, but to me blind, to me, who took eyes that I might you find, was ever grief like mine? A verse about him being abused by his fellow Jews. He says, without me, each one who doth now me brave. In other words, each one of you Jews who now comes so bravely to accuse me and, and, and sentence me and put me to death. Each one had to this day been an Egyptian slave. They used that power against me, which I gave. Was ever grief like mine? Speaking of Judas, mine own apostle who the bag did bear, though he had all I had, did not forbear to sell me also and to put me there. Was ever grief like mine? And on and on the poem goes, the mocking and the torture and the soldiers and the Sanhedrin and the nails and the crown and the taunting on the cross. And every stanza asks, was ever grief like mine? Until one verse the verse that describes Jesus' anguish over being abandoned by God the Father. Look at this verse. But oh my God, my God, why leavest thou me, the Son, in whom thou dost delight to be? My God, my God. That's not a typo. He leaves that blank. And he says, never was grief like mine, emphatically. I love he leaves that blank. It does two things. It sort of echoes the silence that Jesus experienced from his heavenly father. And it allows us to fill in the blank that we probably know. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that is the point in, in George Herbert's poem where he, he, he makes it a statement, never was grief like mine. That is why we can point to all these examples of Christian martyrs throughout the centuries dying more bravely than Jesus because not one ever faced the noose or fire or sword without the confident assurance and hope that they would never have to drink the cup because Jesus drank it. Jesus didn't face a martyr's death with that hope. He faced the experience of drinking the cup and the prospect terrified him. So here's a question. Are you appropriately terrified by the thought, the prospect of facing the wrath of God for your sin? Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It made Jesus' knees weak. It made him beg with God in prayer for another way. 
Does the thought have that effect on you? Has it had that effect on you? The Bible says there are two people who can drink the cup for you. You or Jesus. You can suffer eternal destruction away from the presence of God and the glory of his might or Jesus can. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, will be saved, will be spared the cup. Why? Because he drank that cup. God dealt with sin in Jesus. But until you feel the terror of having to face that yourself, you won't call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord is a desperate thing. And one of the things that should make us desperate for saving is knowing what we are being saved from, and that's God himself. While we were in China, in the last stop for us, the last province we were in, Guangzhou, we were in a hotel room that had this little bathroom with sort of a temperamental lock, and one morning as we were all getting ready to go down to breakfast, my son Levi, who's seven, went in and accidentally got himself locked in, and he started to try to open the door, and he couldn't get it open, and all of a sudden I hear shrieking. I've never heard, I've heard Levi make a lot of loud noise, but he is just shrieking, ah, ah, ah. I mean, I can't even do it as loud as it was, so loud, I'm on the other side of the door going, buddy, 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 and I just can't even get him to stop screaming so that I can talk him through unlocking the door and get out. I mean, it it literally took about two minutes of him just panicking, panicking. Why? Why was he panicking? Fear had gripped him. Suddenly he felt, I'm trapped in here. And and, and he was just overcome with a need to be rescued. And he just starts screaming, well, the Bible says we are trapped helplessly in our sin. Every one of us is born children of wrath by nature, Paul says. By nature, born deserving the very thing, uh, the very cup that Jesus is facing. Are you unfazed by that reality? One of the things I'm praying, our elders prayed this morning, that if you are sitting here this morning and you have never called on the name of Jesus to be saved, that this morning the Spirit would help you see what you need to be saved from and that you'd call on his name like that. You'd repent. You'd pray and say, Lord, that's me. I'm a sinner. I'm unrighteous. I deserve that wrath and I don't want to drink that cup. Thank you, Jesus, for drinking the cup in my place. God, please forgive me on his, on his behalf and based on what he did. And God says he'll forgive your sin. He'll give you his Holy Spirit to come dwell in you, transform you, make you new. Jesus' example here can help you learn to be terrified. So that's number one. And secondly, this terror in Jesus' feels in Gethsemane is what leads to the second thing, his temptation here in Gethsemane. This moment of temptation, I think, for Jesus is, is the most severe temptation that Jesus endured, wrestled with. At the brink of the cross, he's tempted. Let's keep reading. Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell on the ground. That's begging posture. That's what we do. When you fall on the ground 
and ask something, you're begging. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And yet not what I will, but what you will. I was struck this time, this last few weeks, thinking about this passage, that that while Jesus was on earth, the way Satan was tempting many others was different than Jesus. Satan is tempting all sorts of people to kill Jesus, right? Jesus is born. Satan's behind Herod snuffing out babies in Bethlehem to try to squash this king of the Jews, right? Right? He enters into Judas's heart to betray Jesus over to death. He enters the hearts of, of all these Israel leaders in Israel to conspire against Jesus, to destroy him. But Satan's tempting of Jesus is the exact opposite. Every time we see it, Satan's temptation to Jesus is avoid the cross. Avoid the cross. In the beginning, when he, he's out in the wilderness and Satan is tempting him, each of these temptations, in a way, is, revolves around avoiding suffering, right? Don't go hungry. T- turn these stones to bread. Use your power um, to, to, to avoid the suffering of hunger. Throw yourself from the temple. Angels will protect you. The assumption, surely God would not allow any harm to come to you, Jesus. Fall down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, Satan says. Allegiance to the Father is going to end badly, Give me your allegiance. Just skip all that. Jesus sees the same temptation behind Peter's well-intentioned words when he says, may this never happen to you, Jesus. Far be it from you to suffer and die. And he says, get behind me, Satan. That is not, those are not the things of God. And here in the garden, this is the temptation to avoid the cross. Everything in Jesus is recoiling against this experience of the Father turning his face away. And I think even after, when he's on the cross, all the jeering from the criminals and the crowds saying, show yourself, prove yourself, come down from the cross if you are who you say you are. Call upon angels. Is Satan's last ditch effort to try to goad Jesus to just say, enough, this isn't worth it. You're not worth it. The temptation is avoid the cross. And Jesus wrestles with this temptation in prayer. Can you imagine how tempting that would have been for Jesus? Considering the terror that we just talked about? This is the Jesus who once said, my food is to do the Father's will. And now suddenly he's praying, If it be possible, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will. Jesus' will right now is torn. This act of submitting to the Father's will and going to the cross is not easy for Jesus to swallow. And he pleads with the Father in prayer. And at this point, Mark deliberately shows us a contrast. Here's Jesus battling in prayer in the face of temptation. And then we see Peter, James, and John doing the opposite in the face of temptation. This very stark contrast. Look at Jesus first, verse 35, 36. 35, he pleads with the Father. He fell on the ground, prayed, if it would be possible, let this hour pass. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup. Jesus knows if there is a possibility of redeeming people from sin without him drinking the cup, surely God would do that. But because God had already purposed 
not to leave us in our sin, but to glorify himself by redeeming sinners, it was not possible. And so verse 36, Jesus also prays and entrusts himself to the Father's will, yet not what I will, but what you will. Not what I will, but you will. Three things about Jesus' prayer here that that struck me. Number one is notice that Jesus doesn't just pray for five seconds. That's about how long it would take to say, you know, please remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. But the first time he comes back and he says, Simon, could you not even stay awake one hour? You think about Jesus for an hour back and forth with these, this, this dilemma with God praying and wrestling in prayer. Secondly, he doesn't just pray once like this, but three times he goes away. The second time, verse 39, he went away. Mark says he said the same words. So think, he got up for the first time from saying, not my will but yours. And he went back to disciples and then he went back to prayer and he went back again to, Lord, please, if it be possible, remove the cup, yet not my will. But please, if it be possible, but not my will. Back and forth. And third, I want us to be clear. Jesus is fighting this temptation in his humanity. This wasn't just a cakewalk because, you know, he's God and all. We see this in his sorrowful, tearful prayer. He wages war against this internal pulling away from the Father's will. And he does it in the exact same way he urges his disciples that they might not enter into temptation. Notice the contrast. After praying for an hour, <clears throat> Jesus returns to them in verse 37. They're asleep. Jesus is sweating bullets. Luke says he's within a stone's throw away and, and, and they're sleeping. And suddenly he goes from them ministering to him to him ministering to them. He says, you watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says to them, pray hard that you might not succumb. I've warned you. The shepherd's about to get struck and you're all gonna scatter. Pray that you might not enter into that temptation. But again, three times we we see that willing spirit of Lord, they might all fall away, but not me. And they fall asleep. Don't pray. I think when Jesus talks about the flesh being weak. I don't think here he means the flesh being the sin nature. Jesus didn't have a sin nature. But I think he's talking about something that was true of Jesus as well. Because when Jesus goes away to pray each time, we see both his willing spirit, not my will but yours, Father. But we also see the weakness that he feels. My soul is very sorrowful unto death. Please, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. Jesus is urging them to fight temptation the same way that Jesus does. But he comes back three times. Each time they're sleeping. The the last time he says, are you still sleeping? There's a little sting, I think, in that word, still. Do you see yourself in these drowsy disciples? Jesus warns us of temptation, warns of the certainty of it, the craftiness of Satan's schemes, that he prowls like a roaring lion, the consequences of giving in to temptation, the effect that succumbing to temptation has to callous our heart, and we're warned, but do we pray earnestly and watch? We are to conclude here, when we move into the next you know, uh, scene, that the, the disciples' failure to stand by Jesus is directly connected to them failing to pray. 
And Jesus' victory at the cross and staying on the cross and laying down his life is, is because he prayed and the Lord answered. Thank God at the end of the day our confidence is not in our ability to resist temptation but in Jesus' perfect resisting of temptation in our place. Amen to that? Last thing as we finish Jesus' triumph at Gethsemane. His triumph is accepting the cup. Look at the last two verses, verse 41, 42. <clears throat> he came the third time, said, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It's enough. The hour's come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I think at this point, Jesus leaves the scene differently than, than he started. There seems to be a resolve and an acceptance, and he's set his face again. I think that the third time he gets up from prayer and he wakes his disciples, the, 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 the biggest battle is over. He is entrusting himself to the will of the Father, and he will drink the cup. That's the triumph. And I actually think Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ film, for whatever you think about the whole movie, really, I think, nails the theological significance of Gethsemane. Did, did you see that film? I love what he, what he does. It's not actually what happened literally, but I think that this is theologically what happened. Jesus is on his knees and he's praying and it's dark and foggy and he's crying out in anguish and Satan is there whispering at him the whole time things like, no man, one man can carry this burden. This is far too heavy. Saving their souls is too costly. And he's praying and he's praying, not my will, but yours. And as Satan is speaking and he's praying, the snake slithers out from underneath Satan's feet, over, kind of winds around Jesus' feet as Jesus is kneeling, praying. Genesis 3, right? One day, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And as the snake winds around, Jesus comes to the end of his prayer and he stands up and he looks Satan in the eye and he crushes the head of the snake and the next scene is he turns and you see these lanterns coming through the fog. I don't think Satan's head was crushed until he gave up his last breath and the empty tomb then was open. But this moment right here seems to be decisive, doesn't it? This is the moment of triumph. Jesus saying, I'm going to drink that cup. Do you see the love of Christ for you in that resolve? The author of Hebrews, let me finish with this, says Hebrews 12 2, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. One of the things that made Jesus get back up to his feet and say, rise, let us be going, was the joy set before him. And a huge part of that joy was bringing many sons and daughters to glory. He loves you. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure <clears throat> that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Let me pray and let's sing that together. Father, we thank you for sending your son Lord, we realize that this was agonizing for you as well to give your son, 
Jesus, we thank you for willingly um, laying down your life as a ransom for many. Jesus, we thank you for your resolve. We thank you for your earnest prayer and your resisting of temptation to the very end so that you might be our perfect sacrifice. God, we thank you that because Jesus drank the cup, we can have an eternal future and, uh, of, of grace with you. God, I pray that this morning <clears throat> our knowledge of this love would be enlarged and that we leave here filled with your fullness in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.